Hi. Thanks for listening to Please Drink Responsibly, a drinker's guide to American history. I'm Lisa Wiley, your host. I'm a self-professed alcohol historian. This show is about liquor in America, history, drinking laws, craziness, abuse, and manufacture of booze in towns across the United States. This episode, I'm drinking in Norwich, Connecticut. I can trace my family in Norwich to the mid-19th century. The McAvoy family on my mom's side immigrated to Norwich in the mid-1800s, most likely during the Industrial Revolution, along with hundreds of their fellow Irishmen. You can buy booze and grocery, convenience, and package stores from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Saturday, between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. on Sundays. Liquor stores in Norwich, Connecticut are often referred to as package stores or packies. Why? I'm glad you asked. There are two explanations. The first is that New Englanders didn't really enjoy being seen carrying bottles of liquor, so shop owners would wrap them in packages to carry home discreetly. And as much as I can understand wanting to be discreet with your, like, handle of bourbon, the explanation that my research has actually led me to believe is that beer, spirits, and wine in the good old days were delivered to merchants in barrels. Merchants would then transfer the barrel contents into bottles to be sold. However, lots of times, the alcohol would be watered down or diluted or adulterated. So a package store sold alcohol in its original package from the wholesaler. Bars are open in Norwich, Connecticut from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. Monday through Thursday, Friday and Saturday, 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. Making last call on a Friday or Saturday, about 1.30. Norwich was founded in 1659 by settlers from Old Saybrook. Now, Old Saybrook is just like 27 miles from Norwich. Like, I would travel farther for a really good pizza, but it went down like this. Um, a guy named Robert Rich, who was the second Earl of Warwick, was part of the British landed gentry. He was given a land grant from the Crown of Britain. So he went to America and couldn't colonize this entire parcel he was given, so he put this guy, John Winthrop, in charge as governor of these settler parties to go colonize. And they chose Old Saybrook. The problem was, there were people living there already. Now, I'm not going to discuss into too much depth the Native American Wars, because that research would take me off topic, and I'm already, like, fanatically Googling Norwich booze stories. But when the party arrived in Old Saybrook, they found themselves kind of in the middle of a slaughter between warring tribes and also themselves, and they decided it was time to move. The deal was something like if the settlers helped Chief Uncas and the Mohegans defeat the Narragansett tribe with their muskets and uh, military tactics, uh, they would be allowed to purchase Norwich. It was a nine-mile parcel of land, and I would love to know how much they paid, but I haven't been able to find it in my research. If anyone knows, uh, message me. So this group of around 30 to 60 people, I've heard varying accounts, moved into Norwich. Now, because Norwich had rolling farmland and these three rivers that came together, it was ideal. Ships could get into it to deliver goods and Norwich could export their lumber and crops. They built Chelsea Landing in 1684 and went about like homesteading and enjoying peace with the Mohegan tribe, you know, according to the history books anyway. There are really nice parks and landmarks to Chief Uncas and the Mohegan tribe everywhere in Norwich, and tons of roads with Native American names that are hilarious when they're pronounced by your GPS, and sometimes hilarious when pronounced by me. Native Americans at this time did drink a little bit, 
it seems at ceremonies and celebrations, but I don't think they understood the drinking ways of these beer barrel toting Puritan types who were about to be their neighbors. Because the Puritans generally believed that alcohol was a gift from God, but outright drunkenness was a sin. There's an old story about how the Mayflower landed in Massachusetts because they were out of beer. Seriously, look it up. They were on a religious pilgrimage, but were not going a mile further without beer. Because your average English immigrant to the new land was raised on ale and alcohol, because it was actually considered safer than water in Britain. So they brewed and fermented in their homes. At this time, it's estimated that your average colonist consumed about four gallons of hard liquor each year and barrels and barrels of cider, fermented fruit and ale. Once they figured out how to adjust to the new local ingredients, apparently hops were different or something like that. But also in 1679, only 20 years after its founding, Norwich had its own ordinary house or bar. These places were often the town's social hub outside of the church. Business was conducted there, political campaigns, town meetings, and alcohol was obviously served. Thomas Waterman was appointed the first innkeeper of Norwich, Connecticut in 1679. And they started importing rum from the West Indies and then figured out how to make their own by importing only the molasses. Because of the three rivers, they were able to trade up and down New England and all over the world. So they brought in tea, sugar, cotton, and slaves. Yes, yeah, slaves. It blows my mind that the marina in my hometown where like, I go to the 4th of July fireworks and where I fish and they have carnivals, they traded slaves, but they did. Right there. Slavery wasn't outlawed in Norwich until 1774. From its founding to 1775, around the Revolutionary War, Norwich is subject to the British Crown. The British Crown was very concerned about having a defensive force in the New World, so it encouraged the forming of a militia right outside the tavern. So if you showed up at the ordinary and trained, you could drink free ale. And in no time at all, they had pretty decently trained militia. This would obviously turn on them in a few years because in 1774, the 1st Connecticut Regiment was formed to fight the British. Because taverns at this time became meeting places to discuss new ideas and knowing the imbibing habits of our founding fathers, it's safe, I think, to say that the plans for American independence were born in a bar. But plans were made, and here comes the Revolutionary War. Did you know that at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, a soldier was given a ration of four ounces of rum a day? This tapered off as supplies ran low due to trade limits. The British cut off trade routes to the West Indies and sugar and molasses became pretty scarce. So that's how American whiskey was born. George Washington himself had a whiskey still. Benedict Arnold, the legendary trader of the United States, was born in Norwich. He's probably one of Norwich's most famous figures, but did you know that liquor figured heavily in his life at a pretty early age? Benedict Arnold was born into a pretty affluent childhood. His mother was a comfortable widow and his father was a merchant, which means I think he owns, owned his own shop. Benedict Arnold IV was born in 1741. Yeah, he was a fourth Benedict Arnold. His father was a cooper or barrel maker, but also he was a renowned drunk and was often in trouble with the law for public intoxication, and he mismanaged the family's finances. Little Benedict attended private schools, but when he was 13, his dad lost all their money, so he had to go back to Norwich and work at the Lathrop Apothecary 
to help make ends meet and care for his drunken father. In Dad's defense, his children did keep dying of yellow fever, and when the same disease took his wife, he drank himself to death a year later. By the time both his parents died, he had been in and out of the army, and you know the rest. You also know about the Industrial Revolution, I'm sure, but in Norwich, stuff was being made. By the late 1700s, through the turn of the century, Norwich mills were born. Because of the easy importing and exporting and the river energy to power the machines, Norwich became a manufacturing powerhouse. So they built Millionaire's Triangle. This is a stretch in town where the word mansion, I swear, was invented. Beautiful homes that are still standing. It's called Millionaire's Triangle, and it came out of manufacturing in the 1800s in Norwich, Connecticut. You can own a home in Millionaire's Triangle today. I'll put a listing up on my page. It's a 20-room mansion for less than $400,000. If you ever wanted to live in a restored old Victorian mansion, Norwich could be your place. So they're making even more stuff. Guns. They made so many guns there. In fact, they say that Smith & Wesson was born in Norwich. The Industrial Revolution in the U.S. was credited to a man named Samuel Slater. I guess he went to factories in Britain, saw how they manufactured, and brought that knowledge to New England. Today we would call this industrial espionage, but whatever. He was leaving for America, right? His nephew, John Fox Slater, became a wealthy mill owner in Norwich, along with tons of others. All through the 1800s, the town was beginning to see a flow of immigration from Ireland, Canada, Ukraine, Italy, Germany, and every other place. So these little communities were formed. They came for the millwork and set up homes for their families, who, by the way, were all employed there, even the kids. Entire families were hired to work in mills and housed in worker dwellings on mill property. So low wages and long hours didn't really make life fun for the mill workers. At this time, they worked from sunup to sundown, 12 to 14 hours a day. Work was dangerous as the machines moved fast and had the ability to maim or even kill a careless worker. Cotton dust in the air made the air pretty unbreathable. But if you got sacked or injured, not only would you lose wages, you could lose your home in the mill village. And the increasing flow of immigrants made you really replaceable. Maybe this is why the 1800s had a higher drinking rate than at any other time before or since in the United States. To drink as much as an American in the Industrial Revolution, you would be drinking 1.5 750-milliliter bottles of hard liquor a week. That's just the hard liquor. We're not talking about wine or beer, and not everyone drank, but these totals are based on per capita, so the people who drank friggin' drank. And why wouldn't they? I mean, it seemed like these uh, mills were really hard and stressful. And then the Civil War came. Although slavery in Norwich had been outlawed since 1774, and Norwich had a thriving underground railroad, in fact, one of its residents, David Ruggles, helped Frederick Douglass escape from slavery. But, you see, many of the mills in Norwich were mills that imported southern cotton. So the millionaires who had these grand homes in the Triangle were textile millionaires. They had a lot to lose from ending their supply of cheap southern cotton. It created a lot of arguments, but still, Norwich and Connecticut ratified the 13th Amendment and sent 25% of its able-bodied male population to war to fight for the Union, beginning in 1861. And then it seems like the rest of the population of Norwich made arms for the war. 20 companies made armaments for the Civil War, like guns, bowie knives, bayonets. 
But back to what we were talking about, Civil War soldiers drank. The alcohol ration was done away with, but soldiers still managed to find it. <laughs> There's a great story I heard um, about a Union general out of Massachusetts, which is pretty close, but he was confused by how his soldiers kept returning from watch completely hammered. And then he noticed that his men were carrying their muskets carefully at a particular straight up and down angle. When they inspected them, yeah, the muskets were full of whiskey. After the Civil War, it seems boozing only got more popular with the factory system and men returning from war. And some citizens thought that things were getting out of hand. St. Mary's Temperance, Abstinence, and Benevolence Society had a chapter in Norwich at 60 Broadway, and it was established in 1891. It's now uh, art galleries. The building still stands. There was also a Cold Water Army, which I guess is like a group of kids that went around singing about how they would never drink booze and dedicating water fountains to temperance all over town. And also the owners of the factories were not really big fans of the amount of hooch that their employees were drinking. And also World War I was coming, and that was bringing about an anti-German and anti-beer sentiment. So Prohibition came to the United States in 1919. The state of Connecticut, I will have you know, did not ratify the 18th Amendment, but were subject to it anyway. However, it was largely, largely ignored in Norwich and also most of New England. Norwich has a bar which can trace its beginnings to before Prohibition. It's one of my favorites. It's called Billy Wilson's. Its original proprietor, Bill himself, closed Billy Wilson's during Prohibition and sold the name to someone else. Now, Bill Wilson went to work for his uncle in his uncle's speakeasy. Uncle Andrew Wilson ended up getting caught and fined $10,000, which in the 1920s, I'm sure, was a shit ton of money. The name is still on the outside of the bar on Broadway, right across from the courthouse. Because Prohibition couldn't be enforced past seven miles offshore, boats would simply park in international waters and gangs of rum runners in their small, fast boats would run the hooch to shore. This is kind of how American organized crime was cemented into history, these sort of run-rumming gangs. People still like to drink, especially around the holidays, so I have two stories uh, of bootlegging in Connecticut in December. The first happened on Christmas Eve in 1919. A couple of guys made fake whiskey out of wood alcohol, the kind that you use to embalm dead bodies. They actually got it from a mortuary mortuary so they put this clear liquid in whiskey casks and colored it brown and sold it to people and it killed over a hundred people up and down the Connecticut River Valley. It was dubbed in the newspapers Connecticut murder whiskey. The second involves rum runnings from offshore to Norwich and New London and all, a bunch of other areas in Connecticut and Rhode Island. There was this particularly fast boat called the Black Duck and it was famous for evading the Coast Guard. On December 29, 1922, it was carrying 383 bottles of liquor off of the Rhode Island coast when it once again ran across a Coast Guard boat, but this boat was actually firing on them in the fog. In the early morning light and the fog, three out of four men aboard the Black Duck were killed. This event was covered very heavily in the press and cited by politicians as a reason why the 18th Amendment was unenforceable. Prohibition ended in 1933. World War II comes and goes. I'm not going to get too much into it, of course, because I'm an ALCO historian and there are plenty of podcasts about World War II by real historians. 
So Norwich's experience with World War II was much like any other town. They sent a bunch of young men to war. And then something happens in Norwich that might be one of the most messed up stories that I've ever heard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to short title this, A Tale of Two Drinkers. I'll start by telling you about Marion Rooley. She's not one of our drinkers. Her imbibing habits are unknown. She was born in Norwich, Connecticut in 1912 to Ida B. and Ellis Rooley. Her mom died when she was a little girl, and her father, Ellis, remarried when she was 14 to a German woman named Wilhelmina. Ellis was black and Wilhelmina was white, and while this was not illegal in Connecticut at the time, in a lot of places it actually was, the first, it was the first interracial marriage in, Nor in Norwich. It's said that the couple didn't really receive the warmest welcome from their community. Marion's dad, Ellis, was a known drinker, but he was also a hardworking man and a family man, and he worked at construction sites until an injury he got on the job forced him to stop. And he received a settlement for his injury just at the height of the Great Depression, making it possible to purchase land and a dilapidated old house to move his family into. Marion, her father and stepmother, went to work making the old house a home and planting gardens on the three and a half acres. Marion fell in love with and married a man named Douglas Harris. He's our second drinker in the story. And they all lived on Marion's dad's property. Douglas worked as a mechanic in town. He was well-liked by his workmates and loved by his family. Marion's father, Ellis, became close to Douglas and considered Douglas his right-hand man. They worked the land together and spent a lot of time in each other's company. One Friday night in 1949, against Marion's wishes, her husband Douglas insisted on going out drinking with his friends and was gone all night. He'd never stayed out all night before and Marion was worried and a little upset. As he had been leaving the night before, Marion asked him to retrieve water from the well and he hadn't so. A little irritated, Marion went out to get it herself, and that's when she found her husband face down in the well, dead, with his feet sticking out. Norwich police came and declared this an accidental death. They figured Douglas went out, got drunk, and fell in the well. End of investigation. Our poor Marion becomes hysterical. She ends up being placed in the state hospital where they performed a lobotomy on her. Then in 1959, her father, Ellis, returning from a bar on Hollyhock Island called The Hub, allegedly slipped at the base of the driveway on some ice and due to drinking heavily and possibly a heart condition, he smashed his head multiple times and died of exposure in the January cold. But there were plot twists. I'll go with Ellis first. After Ellis Rooley's death, his home burned down. But Ellis was a very gifted painter. In his life, he would try to sell his art in town for $15 a piece. However, his paintings gained massive popularity in the 1990s, and the 60-something surviving paintings now sell for fifteen dollars to $40,000. One hangs in the Smithsonian. They're, they're really awesome paintings. They're f uh, definitely folk art, but they're beautiful, so charming. I'll put some on the um, Facebook page. Okay, plot twist number two. Ellis and Douglas's family and some members of the community were dissatisfied with the police findings of accidental in both of the uh, death cases. So in 2014, both bodies were exhumed and re-examined. Ellis's results were consistent with the original investigation and no foul, foul play could be proved. There was a blow to the head, but no other new evidence. Douglas, however, 
had an unreported or undiscovered fracture of the thorax. Douglas was strangled, either by hand, investigators say, which he was a big guy, that would have been hard, or by ligature, consistent with a lynching, which is fucking terrifying. Anyway, the people of Norwich uh, have dedicated the property where the men lived as a park to honor the family. Through the rest of the 20th century, Norwich was like most mill towns. Jobs shipped overseas and factories closed. It struggles and succeeds. Mohegan Sun arrived. Uh, Casino arrived in 1995. It provided a lot of jobs. Okay, from the headlines, drunken dummies through the ages. Edward Bigelow, a night watchman in the boiler room of a Norwich mill, when confronted by a co-worker for being intoxicated, opened fire twice with a 38 caliber revolver, missing both shots. This happened in 1912. Uh, Norwich school bus driver Edwin Gonzalez crashes school bus into parked car and flees under the uh, influence of alcohol and pills. <laughs> that happened in 2015. Nellie Moore was found on a coal barge on Allen Point in Norwich by police. She was carrying a suitcase and a large bottle of whiskey. Miss Moore was described by police as being hopelessly intoxicated. Miss Moore was found in 1913. Off-duty Norwich police officer Sarah Starkley arrested for driving under the influence at alcohol two times the legal limit. That was a 2018. Police respond to a call at 122 North Main Street where an unnamed man holding a large bottle of whiskey was kicking the front door of a home, insisting it was his house. It was not. That happened in uh, 1911. Highly intoxicated Norwich man, Matthew Simpson, was arrested for child endangerment for leaving his two-year-old daughter in a stroller at a bus stop after drinking most of the day. The child was unharmed, thank goodness. That happened in 2016. John Foley of Norwich found lying helpless in the road drunk. He was trundled to the police station in a wheelbarrow where he was diagnosed with a broken leg. It appears Foley fell from a wall. John Foley took that fall in 1919. If you or someone you know has a drinking problem, I'll put some resources on my page, but definitely reach out. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Until then, please drink responsibly.